Isaiah 58. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin, then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken the word of God for the world. Thank you, Kathy, for reading that the rest of the chapter for me. I appreciate that. I asked her to do that. I know it didn't say it in the bulletin. Um, good morning. It is an honor and a privilege to be here. I thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Providence, for welcoming me this morning. <clears throat> for those of you who might not know, who might be visitors today, I have an assignment. Um, this morning I've been asked here to speak specifically on uh, the value of worship that uh, this family have, of faith has named uh, as one of its values. Um, so as we continue to reflect on the scriptures read and the hymns sung, um, we think about worship, what it is, 
what it is rightly? Uh, why do we worship? It's not often in a Baptist church we read the gospel first and then the Old Testament passage. Um, and I asked that because in the gospel passage, Jesus is telling us, listen, this is who you are as the people of God. And I'm not tossing out the old stuff and simply inaugurating a new thing here. So let us do as Jesus invites us and use his words as a lens through which we look back and regard the prophet Isaiah's words on worship. Merriam-Webster tells us that worship is a noun, reverence offered a divine being, a form of religious practice, extravagant respect or admiration to an object of esteem. This is not part of my sermon, but let's just take a side note. I don't think God wants us to be, to, to uh, consider God an object um, but maybe perhaps invites us to think about God as the subject. Sorry about that. Merriam-Webster offers us the definition of uh, worship as a verb to honor or reverence, to regard with great or extravagant respect. And this chapter Kathy read for us, all of Isaiah 58 talks about um, understanding worship and and thinking about why we do it and how we worship rightly. These words here, beneath them, implicit in them, uh, gets at the essence of identity. Who is God and who are we, um, the people of God, in light of who God is? In her remarkable work, almost Christian, Kenda Cressy Dean helps us understand the trends that we see, um, the data we gather, making sense of why young people aren't in worship anymore, uh, making sense of this lack of interest and participation in the life of the church. Turns out the problem isn't that we haven't put a Starbucks there in the narthex. The, the problem isn't that we still have the furniture from the 1970s and we haven't made a trip to Ikea lately. The problem isn't that we don't have the right form of music. You see, young people simply do not find that the church has anything important to say. From her findings, it seems our task like the task of the people of God throughout time, is not to become more like the world, but to embody a compelling alternative to the world. Likewise, worship is not a time or opportunity to provide the masses with this um, spa-like treatment for your spirit. It's not cheap psychotherapy. We do not gather so that we will feel better about the terrible things we do or experience throughout the week. Though confession and repentance are good for us and part of the liturgy, we would do well to recapture. I appreciate especially that we play at worship bit. I like that. 
The church, rather, the body of Christ gathers for worship not to proclaim the uncompelling news of moralistic therapeutic deism, as Cressy Dean has named it. Rather, we gather to proclaim the good news of a resurrected and resurrecting God who is breaking down the walls of hostility in and among us, the sin in and among us, We gather to tell the story of the God who goes before us as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The God who is taking ordinary things like wine and wheat and water and transforming our lives with them. The God who is snatching life from dead things and making new life always. That is why we gather to tell that story of that God. This is an icon of the Trinity from the 15th century Russia. An artist named Andrei Rublev. Rublev. Um, He's taken the, the angels from the story in Genesis who visit Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, am I saying that right? But he uses this as a way to think about the Trinity. So I'm going to set this right here, and you can, you know, look at it later um, after worship. Come right up there to it. And then I have this. It's just a candle holder. Um, it was a gift to me on the occasion of my ordination. But I want you to regard it and imagine there is a third person here. Okay. And you see that it has no beginning and no end. And the figures seem to be dancing around this perichoretic, as the church will sometimes use, perichoretic walking around divine dance. This idea of the Trinity as these persons in this divine dance is is a force. It's a centripetal force and a centrifugal force. The centripetal force, the force that is pushing out always, is this ceaseless outpouring of love. A love that gives itself away again and again, and it gives and it gives and it never depletes. There is no shortage of love. There is an endless supply going out, the force moving out, the centrifugal force, the force inviting in, compelling in, is the desiring, the attractiveness of the life in the Trinity, drawing us in, and we are being taken up into this ecstatic love in the life of the Trinity. It is a love that binds us and will not let us go. This image of the Trinity is our starting and ending point for thinking about worship. In a recent reflection, Father Richard Rohr writes of the ancient and modern revamped, by the way, rituals of sacrifice as an attempt to control God. And we can hear that in this text, can't we? Can you hear it? You can hear the whining of the people. 
hey, we fasted. We did our part, God. Where are you at? The people of God then and now too easily forget that this is not a conditional, transactional, tit-for-tat relationship. God, God does not say to us, if you manipulate yourselves, your bodies, your lives, in this delicate, exact, right way, I might show up. Like we are constantly adjusting the bunny ear antenna and adding a little tinfoil at the top um, and standing on one foot and holding our breath to catch the elusive wave that gets us the connection with the TV show that we want. Rather, like malleable clay given over to the potter, We are molded and shaped and formed by giving ourselves over to the liturgy of the church, the life of the gathered body on a regular basis. We do not unlearn the habits of sin and learn the habits of holiness by attending just a couple of services a year. Like addicts and alcoholics, we cannot go to a couple of recovery meetings and kick the habit. We, too, have built-in forgetters. We have a constant assault on our senses, demands on our loyalties, voices narrating for us our values in the news, on television shows, through advertisements. What if the narrative of God's story shaped us at least as much as the world's clanging? Thank you, yeah. The headline in my Bible that my Bible's editors have added above this chapter in Isaiah calls this chapter false and true worship. When we read these words from Isaiah, when we consider what we mean when we talk about worship, what we are doing when we worship, let us also consider what it is that is forming us And what is deforming us? If we rightly define sin as being curved in on self, as a civil war within our own hearts and among us relationally, as the dividing wall of hostility built up between us and God, as the dividing wall in my own heart, turning my heart to stone. If we think of sin as the gulf, the breach between us and God, God is God and I am not. Then we rightly understand that what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ is breaking down that dividing wall of sin between us. Ending the civil war among us because sin is bad for us. And sin is that separation, that separation between us and God. And Jesus is working communion, drawing us all back to God's own self so that no thing, neither heights nor depths nor powers nor principalities nor nor rulers nor life nor death nor anything 
can separate us from that love in Christ Jesus. So repairing the breach. When you travel to Europe and you tour the ancient cathedrals, you look at some of the oldest churches in the world. Notice every jot and tittle, so to speak. Every tiny detail. Every large masterpiece. It is all designed to be an assault on your senses. It is all designed to continually draw your attention to God and God's story. Every angel, every gargoyle, every saint, every colored glass pane, every gravestone epitaph, all of it is calling your attention, designed to point back to the glory of God. What has our attention now? What is the all-consuming assault on our senses, demanding undivided attention and proper deference and honor? What is calling us to notice in every website sidebar, every pop-up, every billboard blotting out the mountainscapes, every magazine belabored by, every podcast, radio show, television story peppered with, Unless we become like Thoreau, is there anywhere we can hide from advertisements? Worship offers us an alternative to seeing and thinking, primarily about who God is and who we are in light of who God is. As people living a life in relationship defined primarily through these lens of consumerism and capitalism, we have difficulty seeing God rightly. Because you see, the paradigm, the model of capitalism tells us if there is an abundance of something, it is worth less. The paradigm of the Trinity tells us there is a love poured out for you without end, and no thing can ever deplete it. The paradigm of capitalism tells us the higher the price, the greater the worth. The paradigm of the Trinity tells us this is a gift for you, given freely. The paradigm of capitalism tells us to compete to get the best outcome. And the paradigm of the Trinity tells us that living and working together in mutuality as one body with many members, different but unified in pursuing the common good of life together, this is the very best model for life and relationship to one another. Let us be formed by our worship. Being gathered in and given over to the potter who shapes and forms us, frees us from the tyranny of consumerism, and frees us for life in Christ, markedly different. A redemptive contrast. The light on the hill that shows the world it is the world, and that we are a redeemed People who in words and actions and our entire orientation to the world point to a more excellent way. Worship is God's way of sharing God's joy with us. 
It's what the life of the Trinity is. Worship. Thanks be to God.